A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 167. Five centuries on. Back in our very first end-of-the-century tour, in episode 10 of the show, we toured Constantinople. The year was 518 AD, and it was fun re-listening to that episode recently and hearing what was still true and what was now out of date. As you just heard in our fantasy narrative, the most famous landmarks of the city were still the same in 1025, as they were in Anastasius's day. Interestingly, our last update actually came a few years before the Nika riots, so that episode was out of date almost instantly. But if you replace the Holy Apostles and Archia Sophia with the ones which Justinian built, then the sites are still the same. So, let's follow Stephen and George's route and survey those locations in more detail and see how things would have looked by 1025. We start at the Theodosian Walls, which would have looked older and dirtier, but not particularly different than they had appeared in 518. Sections of it had undergone major repairs, a huge earthquake in 740 had prompted significant work under Constantine V, while Theophilus also recorded many upgrades along the land and sea defences. Listener M.L. asked whether there was a well-organised system of maintenance for the city's fortifications, and the truth is we don't know. Presumably, soldiers and administrators alike were able to spot when sections began to show serious wear and tear. However, the written sources give the impression that they were only paid serious attention during a crisis. I suspect there is truth in that. Hiring work crews and bringing in building materials was very expensive, so most emperors probably left the walls alone, unless it looked like a siege was in the offing. We see the same dynamic at play with the imperial fleet. To maintain a navy cost a huge amount. It was easier to let it run down in times of peace and simply build new ships when you needed them. The one part of the land walls that had changed significantly was in the northwest of the city, around the palace of Lachernae. 
The palace was built by Anastasius and was propped up against the walls that encompassed the sixth hill. However, outside the walls lay the Church of the Virgin Mary, established by Elia Pulcheria in the 5th century. Over time, this had become arguably the second most important church in the city, thanks to the growth of the cult of Mary and the presence of her relics in the building. This prompted Heraclius to extend the walls to enclose the church after the 626 siege by the Avars. The slope of the hill in that area made it very difficult to build two walls or a moat. And although the single wall which was built was thick and studded with extra towers, it became a target for future attacks. Justinian II, Thomas the Slav, and several Bulgar Khans all focused their attempts to breach the walls on this section. Once inside the walls, you would see acres of farmland. After 1025, this space between the Theodosian and old Constantinian walls will be colonised by monasteries, and we'll talk more about that in a future episode, and it'll come up in the narrative, of course. There were certainly several prominent monasteries already in this zone by 1025, able to enjoy the peace and quiet and lifestyle of a rural monastic house, but with amazing access to the corridors of power. The rest of the land was owned privately or by the state and used to grow crops. Cornfields sat alongside vegetable plots, orchards and vineyards. Farmers here had the advantage of being able to drag their crops straight from the field to the city's markets. And naturally there was a high demand for their produce in summer and winter. Vegetables like cabbage and turnips were prized, those that could either be pickled or stored for long periods and consumed during the cold months. The climate of Constantinople and Thrace was not as warm and dry as other areas of the Mediterranean, so local wine, olives and oil were not prized. Along the main road, we then come to the giant cistern of Aetius. Built back in the early 5th century, it measured 800 by 280 feet. As you know, Constantinople had a very poor supply of natural water. Just a few springs and the Lycus River, which usually ran dry for about half the year. The proximity of this cistern to the line of the aqueduct of Valence suggests that it was initially fed by it. However, in tougher times it would just catch rainwater. We also suspect many of these open cisterns fell out of use when the population plummeted during the 7th century. However, in 1025, the population was on the rise and the cistern would have been in use, particularly given its proximity to Vlachianae and the monasteries growing up around that palace. The first major building we come to is the Church of the Holy Apostles. Constantine had built the first church on this spot and Justinian rebuilt it when he found the original in a dilapidated state. The church has quite a controversial early history. It was essentially a pilgrimage site for the first Christian emperor, 
Constantine was to be buried here alongside cenotaphs of the apostles, suggesting strongly that he was number 13, and possibly the greatest of all of them. We talked a bit about this in episode 159, when we covered the imperial mausoleums that lay on this complex. The church sat at the top of the city's fourth hill, and therefore dominated the skyline for anyone working or living in this part of the city. Presumably that was the intention when Constantine chose this spot. The church was also near the original city gates, allowing easy access for the pilgrims that the emperor hoped would come to venerate him. The church was still an important part of imperial ceremonial in 1025. Several processions ended here. However, it would never rival the Hagia Sophia, and so as the centuries pass and funds for repairs become ever more scarce, the holy apostles will become a distant second on the priority list. Visible beyond the church as we make our way down the main road was the aqueduct of Valens. Now, this hadn't occurred to me until this period of research, but why is it that only that one giant set of arches still stands in Istanbul today? I assumed that was just because the rest of the system had decayed or been pillaged for building supplies, and for some reason this section had been left alone. However, in reality, this was the only section in the city to have this monumental appearance. The Byzantines did not want to build a giant aqueduct. It was a pain to get up there to repair things. It cost a huge amount to put it up in the first place. So they wisely used the city's hills to be the bridges which their water came in through. So on our walk today, we've moved quickly from the 6th to the 5th to the 4th hills. Along this trajectory, only a few much smaller arches would be needed to support the water supply. We know very little about this system. Some of it seems to have passed underground. That is what was implied by Justinian II's entry to the city when he squeezed through some abandoned pipes. It's only here, in the big drop between the fourth and third hills, that a giant set of arches was needed to carry the water across. From the third hill on, the water seems to have been piped to different locations and cisterns for storage. So that's why only a part of the Aqueduct of Valens still stands today. If you wanted to bring down a part of that section, then the whole lot would come down, so it was left where it was. In classic Byzantine fashion, the aqueduct we see may not have been built during the reign of the Emperor Valens. As I say, we know relatively little about how the city's water system worked. Archaeology has a long way to go, and the written sources are no help. As far as we know, Hadrian built the first part of the aqueduct which brought water from a spot 10 miles north of the city. During Valens's reign, the system was upgraded, bringing reinforcements of H2O from the Thracian hills some 150 miles away. This much seems accurate, and there are still bridges and underground tunnels in Thrace today 
that will hopefully be fully explored. However, historian Cyril Mango has suggested that the bit of aqueduct we see might well be from Hadrian's original construction. Nowhere does it say explicitly that this was built by Valens. As the centuries passed, and men remembered that Valens was the one responsible for major works on the water system, it may have been forgotten who actually built the giant arches. This is still in the area of historical speculation, but it would join a fine tradition of misnaming things in Byzantine history. The Isaurian and Macedonian dynasties are likely named after men not from those areas, Constance II should actually be known as Constantine IV, and of course the Byzantines are actually the Romans. Regardless of who built it, the aqueduct was a marvel of Roman engineering. The supply was cut by the Avars during the 626 siege, and only repaired in the 760s by Constantine V. By 1025, water was in high demand as the capital's population began to grow apace again. Repairs are mentioned under Basil II in 1020, and again in 1034. We now reach the main fork of the Messi, and it's worth saying that this area of the city, just to the north of the main high street and around the aqueduct, was heavily populated presumably because of access to the water supply, this was the living space with the highest density of people in the city. And that seems to have been true throughout this five-century period. This section of the Messi, running in a straight line down to the Hagia Sophia and the palace, also seems to have maintained its colonnaded walkways throughout the period. And this was no mean feat, given the crowded nature of the thoroughfares, the frequent fires, and occasional earthquakes. Other sections of road may also have had colonnades at various times, but we can't vouch for them being kept in this condition across the centuries. The road would have been in constant use by animals and people lugging their goods around the city, while shops as well as private homes opened directly onto the pavements. Those walking through the porticos would have been able to buy all kinds of food and drink from wooden stalls, or visit craft shops, retail stores, or tavernas. Tavernas were the place to get cheap wine and a meal, and were known as places of intoxication, gambling, and other vices. At night, some shops put out torches to light the path, but you'd be wise to avoid being out then. Sewers ran under the messy, allowing the rain to sweep away dirt and trash. We now come to the forums of Theodosius and then Constantine. It's worth saying that building forums with a monumental column in the centre of them was a craze that defines the development of the city's urban space. Remember that the original city of Byzantium only inhabited the far east of the landscape, the first and part of the second hill, where the palace, Hippodrome and Hagia Sophia were then built. Constantine's expansion had to pull development west, so he constructed his forum just outside the old Severan walls to try and move market exchange 
in this direction and encourage new settlers to build further west. His column then dominated the skyline when you were in the city centre. Theodosius naturally followed this example, establishing his forum and column even further to the west. His son Arcadius pushed even further down the southern branch of the Messi. Both of these columns were modelled on Trajan's famous monument in Rome, with spiralling sculpture celebrating their military victories. Those are the famous ones, but Marcion also followed suit, not far from the Holy Apostles, and though his forum is gone, the column is still there. And we also know of columns built by Theodosius II and Leo I, which haven't survived. Naturally, Justinian attempted to outdo them all, building a giant column for himself right next to the Hagia Sophia, so that anyone who visited the city would see it. And unlike many of the other columns, his equestrian statue stayed firmly in place all the way to 1453. After Justinian, though, the money wasn't always available for such gigantic constructions, and future emperors tended to focus on church-building or renovating the palace, rather than putting up columns. Those columns almost always stood in a forum. That was the proper location to admire such a monument. The point being that many forums had come and gone over the centuries. We only think of the famous ones, whose shape can still be discerned somewhat today, but many others existed, some were swallowed up by markets, others by private housing. The city was a living organism, expanding and contracting, and finding new uses for old locations. The city's lowest ebb seems to have come around the 740s and 50s. This was just after the siege of 717 and the civil war that followed Leo III's death, Earthquake and plague dealt the city several nasty blows. Constantine V was forced to bring in new settlers to repopulate the city, and he reconnected the aqueducts to provide for them. It was during this time that the emperor decided to move the city's cattle market from outside the walls right into the Forum of Theodosius. Not too edifying for the long-dead emperor, but a practical use of space for a population that needed encouragement to grow again. Constantine's Forum suffered no such indignity and was still the home of the money trade. I'll be dedicating an episode to the city's merchants, and so we'll return to that subject in the future. Moving further east, we come to the Augusteon, the public square where you would find the Hagia Sophia and the gate to the palace. This was remodelled completely by Justinian, who obviously built the new church, his column, and a revamped Chalk Gate, amongst many, many other buildings. Sadly, lots of antique statues that had lined this square and others went up in flames during the Nika riots. Those in the Hippodrome seem to have survived in part because they were 15 feet above the ground on the Spina. Once the various crises hit the city in the 7th century, 
the calendar of chariot races was considerably reduced. They would still be held every couple of months, depending on the era. Between the expense and the potential for crowd trouble, it was probably decided to keep them as a special event. The Hippodrome was still used as a location for celebration, for other forms of entertainment, and for punishments. Listening back to episode 10, I was reminded of one of my biggest factual errors, or rather several factual errors rolled into one. Back then I reported that only the Blues and Greens now really competed, that their fan clubs were the same thing as the Deems, and that political issues informed the loyalties of each side. None of that, it seems, was the case. The Reds and Whites still raced. The Deems were the professional bodies who trained charioteers. Their fan clubs were simply fan clubs. And the allegiance of fans to the colours had nothing to do with the political issues of the day. Loyalties seem to have formed based on the same reasons we like our sports teams today. Proximity to their home base, attraction to a star charioteer, or the preference of our parents. You can hear all the details about chariot racing in my Byzantine Stories episodes about Porphyrius the Charioteer, available for purchase from the website. The Hagia Sophia continued to be the wonder of the Christian world. Every visitor who ever writes about Constantinople mentions it and admits what an unbelievable sight it was. No church could match it for size or grandeur until the end of the Byzantine era, and then, of course, none of them could boast its antiquity. We'll explore more of its mythology in our next episode. I'm also leaving the palace for a future instalment, as there are far too many details to go over today, ditto the city's university. The Monastery of St. George in Mangana is where George and Stephen ended their journey last episode. The whole area of the original Acropolis of Byzantium, the first hill adjacent to the sea north of the Hagia Sophia, was dominated by monastic houses, hospitals and other institutions. The name Mangana came from an arsenal which had once been in the area. The monastery of St. George was, by 1025, very old and run down, but still claimed to hold the relics of the saint who had been killed by Diocletian, as the story goes. When our narrative resumes, this building will be replaced by a fabulous and fabulously expensive new complex of buildings established by Constantine the Ninth, part of the building boom which emperors post-Basil II will enjoy. Just a few things to tick off as I survey what else I said back in episode 10. Of course, the grain dole was cancelled by Heraclius during his war with the Sassanids, and we assume that this saw a significant dispersal of the population of the city. Probably this event, more even than the plague uh, 60 years before, saw people abandon the capital and move elsewhere. By 1025, the government relied on the market to bring grain to the city. 
but of course they heavily regulated its sale, distribution and price to ensure that the poor could afford to eat. We discussed this in detail back in episode 119. The church now provided the real safety net, offering free food and a place to sleep for the homeless. You should all be clear by now that the Senate no longer has meetings, nor did it really back in 518. I explained the place of the elites and the evolution of their role back in episode 118, if you need a refresher. Finally, bathing. Another monumental structure which Justinian resurrected were the Baths of Zeuxippus. This fully equipped bathhouse and gymnasium had once housed a fine collection of antique statues, but all were lost in the Nika riots. Justinian rebuilt the facilities, but this was the last refurbishment they would receive. These public bathing complexes were another hugely expensive item that was scrubbed from the government's balance sheets during the 7th century. Christian moralists were happy to see them go, though small private baths continued to function all the way through to 1025. They were often attached to monasteries or hospitals, institutions that could afford to maintain them. They usually charged the wealthy to use them, and some were opened to the poor once a week. The giant edifice of Zeuxippus, by the way, was left to slowly decay, serving for some time as an armory. We will talk plenty more about Constantinople, its services and institutions, but these last two episodes should give you an idea of the outline of the city, of the monuments that survive, and the basics of life in 1025. One thing is for sure. Between Rome and Baghdad, no city would have looked anything like Constantinople. Its size was immense and beyond the imagination of those who had only seen the cramped citadels of Anatolia or the trading towns of France and Germany. There was no place in urban medieval sprawl for public squares or monumental architecture. Nor could anyone have built anything on the scale of the Theodosian Walls or the Archaea Sophia. As we'll see next time, to a foreign visitor, the city truly was beyond a wonder. It was a city touched by the divine. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.